Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brujic. I'm joined with Dr. Scott Hosworth, where we're going to be talking and, and doing a deep dive with this young man because he is the king of pain on the OI show. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate you taking the time and being here with us. So Scott, um, for, for, those, for those in the audience that maybe aren't familiar with where you practice, what you do, give us a little bit of a background on, on what you do and really where your kind of focal point of interest is. Sure. Um, so I'm at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I've been there for five years, almost to the day now, um, since 2017, and came to do basically two things. This is job number two for me. Um, first was direct the ocular surface clinic and provide a little bit more structure to that. Um, we'll get into a lot more of that stuff. And the other part was to try to work with the folks at the university in the cataract and cornea department on um, co-management strategies and how best to work with optometry. So um, with, uh, with respect to the stuff that I'm working on in ocular surface, dry eye, et cetera, um, my primary focus has really been trying to understand uh, neurosensory dysfunction and its role in dry eye. So I came here kind of um, as we were really starting to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, neuropathic pain and corneal neuralgia and those sorts of things. And that um, that aspect of it is has really grown over the years. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of the main area of focus. Now we're seeing quite a few of those patients. So Scott, you have kind of some interesting technologies or access to those for some of these patients. And, and one of those is confocal imaging. Share with us a little bit more about that, um, how it works, what you can actually see with the imaging, and how long the patients have to sit to acquire these images as well, too. Okay, yeah, great question. So um, that's actually one of the one of the more, I guess, really specialized technologies that I deal with. Um, you know, most of my daily practice is, is actually not probably terribly unlike yours at all. Uh, but this technology is really interesting. It allows us to view using a scanning laser mi um, microscope, uh, really fine detail um, at high resolution um, in a live patient. We can basically scan from the front of the eye or from the cornea, front of the cornea to the back of the cornea and image pretty much with high detail the different layers including the subbasal nerve plexus. And so while we use the technology for more than just in my clinic for um, dry eye and ocular pain patients, we're also using it for like infectious keratitis to rule out, you know, fungal and amoebic infections. Um, but where I use it primarily is looking at the subbasal nerve plexus to look for anomalies in, in uh, physi physiology and structure. So Scott, is it, um, do you find it's a one-to-one -one ratio, meaning Yep, I know this is what the nerve plexus is supposed to look like. So if it's reduced, this individual oftentimes will have lower level of pain sensation. Or is there something more to it where, okay, I'm seeing an obvious reduction in nerve plexus quality, quantity, but this patient's still perceiving more pain than I would expect them to be? Yeah, this is this has uh, been really interesting because if you look at the literature, um, especially early studies, it was kind of all over the place with dry eye, but they didn't really factor in. I don't think a lot of the symptomatic changes that occur, like we see patients that, you know, the, the pain without stain, you know, on one hand, those are potentially neuropathic patients. And then on the other hand, we have the neurotrophic patients. And so I think it's probably easiest to pick up on neurotrophic keratitis, just because we can see an obvious reduction. Um, it's usually pretty profound depending on the nature of the injury. 
but um, that's pretty easy to pick up on the, the pain patients. It's a lot more subtle. There's definitely some nuance to it because they may have a relatively normal looking plexus in, in many areas. Uh, but there are also some structural changes, uh, development of things like microneuromas or abnormal sprouting um, that are associated uh, statistically with incidence of pain. Um, but because we're imaging such small sectors of the plexus and it's really hard to to map to go back to the same spot twice, um, it can be a little bit challenging following these patients over time. So, so there is some nuance to it for sure. So Scott, let's let's first um, review a little bit of the neurotrophic because those patients are interesting. Um, you know, when when you're looking at these patients, we we now have obviously an FDA approved treatment for these individuals as opposed to kind of just taking a shotgun approach with them. But is there a I see stain without pain, or I see these non-healing ulcers? I mean. Do you see the whole gamut of presentations with this reduced nerve plexus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if we look at it percentage-wise, the stuff that I used to think of when it comes to neurotrophic disease, like the non-healing ulcers or the neurotrophic ulcers where you have a big epi defect, those are actually a really small percentage of the people that we see with it. More commonly, it's folks that have risk factors for neurotrophic disease, i.e. things like diabetes, or maybe they've had a history of like herpetic lesions in the past, but most of them present as like the persistent um, punctate keratopathy uh, with some, some interesting changes. If you look really closely at a lot of these folks, you know, despite kind of your standard dry treatments, a lot of times that pattern of staining doesn't change over time. And then there's also intraepithelial uh, like opacities, these small little stellate types of lesions that kind of clue you in that it's it's not just a, a, like a dry eye problem. It's actually more relating to how the epithelium is being fed by the nerves. And that's just coupled with a lack of corneal sensation. Oftentimes it's blurred vision or, or a incidental finding on clinical examination that we're seeing these patients with, and they're just not feeling what we would expect them to, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one thing that I guess we do differently now is that just about every patient gets um, sensitivity testing, corneal sensitivity testing as part of their dry workup, right? I don't think I did that, you know, four or five years ago, uh, but we're doing it on every patient now. And then those that were really suspicious of either being on either end of that spectrum, um, then they get confocal imaging so that we can actually try to put those things all together. And then Scott, are you doing the corneal sensitivity testing? Do you have a technician that's performing that testing? And then what testing are you specifically doing in your office for that? Yeah. So we have a lot of technologies, but we also have, you know, cotton cotton swab tests. Yeah. Uh, Literally up until probably about six months ago, I was just doing cotton wisp testing because it's immediate, it's on hand. And really most of the time you're looking at it in one eye relative to the other. Um, more recently, because I've, I've also gotten some research off the ground with it, I'm using a Cochet Binet a little bit more frequently, and we try to do, um, uh, you know, three to five zones, either superior, central, and inferior, or including the nasal, nasal and temporal, just kind of depending on what the patient presents like. But that gives us a little bit more of a quantification. What we're finding with that, though, I mean, there's, there's faults in some of this technology in that even though that's been kind of the standard that most of us haven't even picked up since optometry school. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of folks that are on the, the pain side of the spectrum or what we're starting to call hyperesthesia or um, hyperalgesia, 
where they're super sensitized. And so even at the, like the lowest force setting on a Cochet Benet, they're like very aware of that sensation. So we need something even better than that. Brill Technologies, we're uh, trying to work with them. Uh, they have a, like a handheld air jet uh, cesiometer that would, I think, be a little bit more um, productive in a research setting. So Scott, let's let's now shift gears because again, we're talking about the individual where we're seeing signs, but they're not necessarily the the super sensitive patients. Now mm-hmm. let's talk about what was more traditionally kind of pegged as that neuropathic patient, the individual who is much more sensitive than we might expect. Um, so tell us a little bit more about from your imaging studies, kind of what you're seeing that's interesting with these patients, if you're finding anything new with them, and then. Um, how are you um, managing these individuals and what are some of the kind of the nuggets where you're like, this we found works really well when we see X, Y, Z? Yeah. Well, I think from a clinical diagnosis standpoint, I think the thing that is always important to remember, almost irrespective of which disease entity we're looking at, but especially with these patients too, is try to match up their symptoms with what their clinical signs are. Because um, what I found really anecdotally is that, you know, when we look at some of these hyperalgesic patients, their symptoms are, are much more than what I would expect looking at their tear breakup or their, their corneal or conjunctival staining, right? We should, have a, we should have a reason for them to feel the way that they do. And for a lot of dry eye patients, it matches up pretty well, but 50% of them, it doesn't, right? And we've had that knowledge for a long time. And so I'm really looking for that as the primary indicator. The other thing we look at is um, from a historical standpoint, you know, presence of autoimmune disease or, you know, small fiber neuropathy or history of like head, head injury or spinal injuries, uh, folks that have peripheral neuropathy in other areas, uh, hands and feet. Um, Those are questions I'm asking every patient that comes in uh, just because again, those risk factors elevate the likelihood that they'll have corneal uh, manifestations of that neurosensory abnormality. So again, a, a, a big part of it really comes from kind of looking and trying to match up what they're saying with what you're seeing. The second part of it is understanding how the history really plays into to where they are today. From, um, from a diagnostic standpoint, what we're looking for on confocal microscopy, like I mentioned, micro, um, micro neuromas, um, those are, they're almost like little bundles of nerves. Um, most of the subbasal nerve plexus follows a pretty predictable pattern where, um, much like the epithelium, it migrates in kind of radially and then, um, begins to, to curve a little bit when, once it nears the apex of the cornea and there's some branching going on and a little bit of looping, but most of the time the nerves are fairly straight and, except for when you get to the apex and, um, in patients that have, uh, neuropathy, you know, there's more likely going to be um, these like little nerve bundles, or you can see increased branching or, um, or uh, sometimes some beating uh, where the nerve looks like it's almost like a little bit sausaged or extra thick too. All of those um, are, are increase the risk of, of a neuropathy present. Does that make sense? It does. Now, Scott, so for these patients, um, really, what's your, what's your kind of clinical path for these individuals? I know that you're always trying to okay. Let's let's figure out how we're going to manage the ocular surface. But is there anything else that you're you're really doing to help these patients? Yeah, two critical pieces are um, anti-inflammatories, and so we do hit them with steroids pretty hard, especially if we can see inflammation on the confocal. Um, it's one of the other things I guess we haven't talked about yet is uh, that imaging system allows us to see um, activated dendritic cells 
at or near the level of the subbasal nerve plexus too. And so you get a good visual sense for how inflamed that person is. Um, so anti-inflammatories are step number one. Step number two is really regenerative therapies like um, autologous serum is something I'll use um, on a daily basis, multiple times a day. And generally speaking, as long as they have a pretty healthy epithelium to begin with, we'll hit them with higher concentration serum. So 50% is what I use most frequently. And Scott, are you using Regenerize for these individuals at all? Or do you prefer autologous serum to Regenerize? Or how are you leveraging those, those strategies? So, so while I do use some Regenerize, it's a little bit more sporadic. Um, the literature, peer-reviewed literature on amniotic fluid drops uh, for dry in general is pretty sparse right now. Um, and there's really nothing out there um, for pain as of yet. That being said, you know, if we have a really older um, kind of sick individual, we, we think is probably not going to have a lot of good, nerve, you know, nerve growth factor and other endogenous growth factors in their, in their circulatory system. That's where we get the serum from. Then Regenerize might be a good option for them just because it might provide some other things, you know, relating to mesenchymal stem cell, you know, products that aren't going to be present in high amounts in an elderly person or someone who's, who's otherwise, you know, fairly sick. But, um, but I don't use it quite as much. Uh, we just did a sort of a retrospective review, and I think I've got about 80 patients that we've done over the last five years on it. And we're trying to look at the results now to see if there's um, meaningful data there that we can share with others. That's great. 80 patients on the Regenerize or on autologous serum? No, no, no. Uh, Regenerize. I probably got about 600 at any given time on autologous serum. <laughs> God, how long do you usually keep them on autologous serum for this? Or do you just kind of chronically keep them on it? Well, it, that really, that's a great question. It really depends on what we're putting them on. If we look at pain specifically, a lot of those folks are minimum six to 12 months. Um, I know there've been a couple of papers um, that have, that have uh, shown improvement at, you know, between three and four months, I think on average with, uh, I think that one was even looking at 20% serum um, in patients that had photoallodynia or light sensitivity, um, I don't find quite as robust results with my patients, even at 50%. So while many of them will show signs of improvement as early as, you know, three or four weeks, most of them, it takes a little bit longer than that before they really start to get the pain levels down to a really more comfortable level. That's Scott, this has been absolutely awesome. Um, you know, now that you've had this technology for five years, do you feel like it's really kind of given you another layer or a level that you're, you're taking into consideration for these patients that you just kind of felt like, I can't believe how I, how I used to care manage for these patients without this technology? Yeah, it's definitely changed the way that I practice. I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that has had a really meaningful impact, because I, I do see patients that come in requesting it. They've heard from other patients that we have this, or maybe there's other doctors in the community that know we have it and they feel like it would be helpful. Um, while it is helpful in a good percentage of patients, it isn't necessarily an, a must have. Like I wouldn't tell an average practitioner to go out and buy one. What it does, what's done for me, I think more than anything else is really given me confidence in what I'm treating um, and been able to tie a couple of those things together a little bit more neatly than I would have been able to otherwise. Um, and it's, it's really good for research when we're looking at new uh, drugs and, and FDA trials, you know, that's one of the things that maybe gives us a little bit of an advantage from a, as a site is being able to look at some of, uh, some of the potential changes that could occur here. Um, you know, depending on what the drug does, you mentioned, um, the one FDA approval that we have for, uh, neurotrophic keratitis, 
There's a couple more that are in the pipes um, that are that we're working with as well um, to see if those are going to be beneficial for our patients too. That's great. Well, Scott, listen, um, thank you so much. This was, as always, every time I get a chance to talk to you about this kind of stuff, it's always a really insightful, great stuff that you guys are doing at the university there. And uh, thank you for sharing your expertise with us and the audience. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a blast, Millie. It's great to see you. Yeah, and thank you all for joining us on this episode of the OI Show. Make sure you um, like us, make sure you follow us, make sure you follow our episodes. And Scott, we'll definitely have you back on again. Thank you again. All right. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.